Hi, I'm Sheila McGlown, co-host of Our NBC Life. We have dedicated this podcast to the memory of my mom, Grace Evelyn Johnson, who died of metastatic breast cancer on August 17, 2004. My mom was an extraordinary woman. She was an extraordinary mother. She loved life and she showed me how to live life despite the circumstances. She always told me that no matter what the outlook, God is always in control. I do what I do to continue her legacy. I am her voice, and I truly, truly, truly miss her so much. When she died, a piece of me died with her, but she continues to lift me up. Our NBC Live team has gathered up this audio quilt of remembrances from our listeners, our friends, and from our hearts. We remember and we will never forget those who've died of metastatic breast cancer. This is Julia Maues. I'd like to remember some of the friends that we've lost over the years. It's too many. Ryan Keith Brenda Cho, Rihanna Sykes, Helga Torres, Patricia Wu, and last but not least, Jennifer Yuseda. I will always, always have you in my heart. My name is Victoria Goldberg, and I'm one of the producers of Our NBC Live. I would like to share with you a selection from the memoir of my friend Shanna Joseph. It's called Sincerely Shanna. Dear future self, do you ever look back and think that in your 30s you had a life-threatening disease? Unbelievable, right? I know. Well, guess what? You made it. You experienced life's most difficult roller coaster. You built the strength you needed to live and even thrive with the big C. The truth is, it will never leave you. You will always walk around wondering when the next bad news will hit. You will get tests for the rest of your life to monitor your disease and occasional medication shifts to manage more progression. You will continue to battle annoying side effects and schlep into the city frequently to alleviate them with more and more meds. The truth is, there will be scary years and not so scary years. The cancer will go to your organs at some point because this is what happens. You will think you're dying and lose 20 pounds. Then you will gain 30 pounds and wish you were skinnier. You will never know exactly where this is heading and when. What you do know is that it is never a straight line. You will have months where you're so sick with side effects that you can barely leave the house. You will have months 
where you almost forget that you have cancer again. Your doctor will retire and your nurses will get transferred to different departments. Your therapist and your Reiki master will also retire. Your personal trainer will move to China. Your massage therapist will switch careers. You will acquire an entirely new team of support. You won't be as close with them and dependent on them as you were with the original team who saved your life. But you will learn to love and trust them too. You will travel with friends and family to every destination on your hit list. Some will be closer to home and more restorative, like Maine, out west and down south. You will see the Taj Mahal at sunrise. You will ride a camel in Morocco. You will lie on the beach and soak up the culture of Bali. You will take a jeep through the camps of Africa and watch animals in their own habitats. You will continue to exercise and play tennis and practice yoga. You will be forced to quit tennis and yoga because they're too taxing. But you will take walks around the neighborhood with friends. Your house will bustle with family, friends, and neighbors. You and your husband will talk about buying a plot of land in the Berkshires and building that lake house you designed when you went to design school. You will also talk about designing a beachfront apartment in Miami so you can have warmth and sunshine during the long, cold northeast winters. You will officially start your business and market it. You will have more clients that you know what to do with. Your designs will win awards in local and national competitions. You will be featured in magazines. You will train novice designers if you want to. But you're not sure if you want to. You may develop other interests and talents like cooking and playing the piano again. You may write another book. You will continue to read as a hobby. Your parents will grow old. Your siblings will continue their life journeys. Your husband will continue to work his butt off until he's happy with his career and then start to back off. Your kids will become taller and wiser than you. They will grow into more and more amazing beings and continue to surprise you with their resilience and compassion. Their talents will astound you and you'll be there to watch them grow up. You will acquire more and more wrinkles. Your body will ache, not just from the lifelong medications, but from getting older, from being middle-aged. And everyone will continue to rally around you for the rest of your life with peace, with joy, with hope, and most of all, with sincerity. Sincerely, Shanna. My friend Shanna Joseph passed away on Monday, August 3rd, 2020. She was 41. An email remembrance from Thelma. Cindy Layer Gromovsky lost her battle with NBC on April 9, 2020, at the young age of 55. It was her third battle with breast cancer. We were Thelma and Louise. She lived life to the fullest. She was as beautiful inside as out. She loved to hike, ski, 
ride bikes, enjoy the beach, and loved to sing almost as much as she loved her 16-year-old son. Myself and others are alive because she made sure we had our mammograms and got me to the best surgeons and oncologists when I fought my battle. More than that, she was like a sister, and I miss her every day. In the fall of 2019, during the Metaviver Stampede in Washington, D.C., the writer Andrew Silver presented his play called Four, written in honor of his wife, the poet Anya Silver, who died of NBC in 2018. This play was staged with the help of individuals living with NBC. This excerpt starts with the words of NBC advocate Beth Caldwell, who died in 2017, as voiced by Emily Garnett, who then died of NBC this past March. Beth Caldwell, 21 days earlier from The Cult of Perfect Motherhood, October 11th, 2017. I'm dying, getting radiation treatment on my brain that makes me unable to taste salt and also makes me fatigued living with pneumonia and whatever the hell is going on with my lungs. Fun times. But that's not really what's important. What's important is what's happened to the metastatic breast cancer community this year. I can't get over the people we've lost. Beth Calabata. Mandy Hudson. Champagne Joy. Kelly CB. So many others. Please speak the names of people you know who have died of breast cancer. Linda Silver, Marianne Pichettos, Shelfield Allen, Martha, Martha Alston, Henry Lord, Laura Kovac, Candy Harrison, Yolanda Sanchez, Anna Thompson, Bill Becker, Sonica Hill, Annie Van Dyne, Laura Nixon, Amy Amber. Sarah Bush, Christine Knowles, Annette Danes Hyatt, Taylor Don Bolton, Charisse Dubose, Patricia Wu, Amanda DeSevre. They're dead. They're gone. How do we live without them? Why couldn't science do better by them? Why isn't there research that might have saved them? So off we go to Capitol Hill to try to convince them to listen to us. We lay on the ground and we remember the people who have died and we talk about what we need our government to do for us and we go to their offices and beg them to help save our lives. And what makes me angry is that they don't. They don't do shit for us. They have all sorts of platitudes for us, but they don't do shit. When you go to the stage four stampede this year in October and you go lobbying, I want you to remember that Congress owes us their hard work. They owe us their help. And when they give us nothing, remember that we're going to have to ratchet things up from here on out. Don't be afraid to speak the truth to them because we're dying and more of us will die unless they help save our lives. Be brave, and mighty forces will come to your aid. My heart will be with you in D.C. Anya Silver, Dedication. 
Because I know that healthy people fear us, that they invent ways in which we differ from themselves, it's to you, dear friends, to whom I write my poems. You, whom I've never met, to whom I type my frantic letters, whose suffering fills my inbox long past midnight, who read path reports like prophecies, who exist in stages. You sit in the waiting rooms of faraway cities. I invent faces to match your histories, which regimens have worked and which have failed. I speak your names at night, a litany, the repetition like picking a scab or saying a rosary. To you, I dedicate these words. Let them stand before God like a sheet of flame, smoking your precious, flickering names. We remember Stacy Hood, Paulette Thompson Clinton, Anise Smith, Judy Erdahl, Monica Hendershot, Mary Roberts, Tanya Sumner, Uzma Yunus, and Valerie Roybal. We remember Kelly Alder, Lori Anderson, Lindsay Ballas, Des Cedillo, Marilee Considin, and Danielle Cooper. As part of our audio remembrance, I had the opportunity to speak with Kate Keith in more detail about Ryan Keith, the male NBC advocate and beloved member of our community who died in May of this year. We met at the end of college. We were both 21. We worked at the same spot at our university. We went to school at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. I got a job at the Outdoor Pursuit Center, which was run through the rec center of our school, and it was an outing club. And I didn't have much knowledge or skills. I was hired in the the retail rental part. So if you wanted to go camping with your friends, you'd come in and rent a tent and sleeping bags on a camping stove. But they also had a climbing wall and a group of students who were trained to run trips that you could sign up and go out for a week on spring break to you know have a van and drive somewhere. And Ryan was deep. He was, he managed the climbing wall and he, he was an Eagle Scout. He had been on a national outdoor leadership school trip for a month. He, he loved the outdoors and he was really knowledgeable. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about Ryan's early life before he met you. So Ryan is the youngest of three. He has a sister who's seven years older and a brother who's four years older. Mm-hmm. His parents are from the mid-southwest of the country, Missouri, Kansas, Colorado area. And his dad worked for the Bell companies, the telephone companies. And so they moved around a ton when he was little. Texas, Missouri, New Jersey. And then he landed from third grade on in McLean, Virginia. And he went through high school there. So he was, from what all the stories that I've heard from his mom and sister and brother and dad, kind of like the angelic baby. He had big ringlet blonde curls. And he just is a a really easy person to be around. And now that I'm a mom, I can see that that is pretty much from birth, their personalities. (laughs) You know, so I imagine he was a pretty easygoing kid for the most part, played a ton of sports, would rather be outside than inside in a classroom or at a desk. I think 
he probably did fine at school, but that he definitely excelled in the athletic department. He was an Eagle Scout, like I said, so deeply into all the challenges. You know, he he would often say to me, I would have totally gone into like a special operations unit in the army if it wasn't, if I didn't have to sign up to be, go to war. But he loved that sort of thing. Just challenges. He knew how to do everything. You could be in any environment with him and he would know how to light a fire or get out of a situation or, or fix. I mean, he just, he just knew how everything worked. So, and then I would say the other thing about Ryan, which you saw in the video, he was very playful and always joking. Even to, he was, nothing was too sacred. (laughs) So, I mean, he, he could borderline on offending, but he just kept everything pretty light. But it's really interesting, Lisa, that we're having this conversation now because we're planning a virtual memorial and I'm preparing what I'm going to say. And what I really, what I'm talking about is then this quiet integrity about him that was a paradox to that outward, silly playfulness. And that's the part of his spirit that I think the people that really knew him super close also saw in him. Yeah, that there was a depth to the man. You could see that too. I know some of those angles of him. I don't know if that's what you're talking about that caught him in like a contemplative. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, those are especially hard to see because I can imagine what he's thinking. Yeah. There's a depth to his character. And of course that's what everyone who's known him has told me, you know, a marriage is rocked by metastatic breast cancer, any stage four disease, it's just rocked by it. And you talk about it in our podcast so beautifully that your your marriage and your life of give and take in that marriage is on overdrive, right? That all of a sudden from, you know, 41, you live a marriage of almost 50 years kind of thing to the end of your days and you do it in overdrive. And that increases the intensity of what is a normal exchange? He was so devoted. Um, I think, you know, the, that's the quiet integrity that, I was, that I've been reflecting on and trying to really think about how I'm going to articulate that. Ryan just had a very solid understanding of what mattered. Even though as his company became more successful and he, so he was a general contractor mm-hmm. and you know, he, he didn't care about, as long as the, we had a certain level of comfort and could have some fun, he just really didn't care beyond that. He, he started having clients that were extremely wealthy or extreme, had big, big titles and, and famous. And the people that touched his heart and that he came home and talked about were the men on his cruise that he was watching risk their lives to come to the United States and live with multiple people in small apartments to send money back to their wives and children. And he was so inspired and humbled by stories like that. He just didn't care about things that weren't important. And I think living here and doing the job that he did I wish that I wish we had made some different choices, honestly, because it was hard for him at times. I think we would have been better if we had kind of followed that path of us being outside a lot, out out in nature, 
I'm not sure about you, but what I have witnessed with our family and other friends, it's like there's this period of your life where you just work, 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 work. And that, not by choice, but just by the way that the chips fall becomes the most important thing. And for years, Ryan got up at 6 a.m. and came home at 7 p.m. For years. And it wasn't until he got sick and couldn't keep that pace that he slowed down. And I just wish we had done that earlier because you can never get that time back. And it causes a lot of stress to have that sort of pace of life. You, you really give up, you compromise the way that it, the way that you want to play, the way that you want to relax, the people that you want to spend time with for just grinding it out to, and this is, you know, he really felt like I, I, I just want to provide for my family. I want to, I just want to do the best I can at my job. But I, I do, I do wish that we had had more, more play and rest. And I'm not quite sure if it's worth it. Yeah, I hear you. What do you love? What do you, what did you love most about him? Um, that he made me laugh and was a really good conversationalist. Would, had very interesting, thoughtful, deep interpretations of politics, religion, history, I just liked how I felt when he put his arms around me. You know, it's it's almost even hard to to articulate. Maybe it's more of a feeling that when I was with him, that I just felt like I was home. Yeah. What was he like as a father? Oh, he was so much fun. He made a mess with them all the time. <laughs> yeah. um, was always like bucking the system. Let's go for Slurpees. Let's go to the... I mean, he was just always doing things. I was like, Oh no. Um, but they loved it. They loved it. And he was also, he had high, high energy. So he was, he was able to sustain that play all the time, the outside play, the many fond, many of my friends have fond memories of, we would do family dinners with our kids. Ryan was like always doing dinner games and asking the kids questions. And if we'd go away with other families, at, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon when we were all like, let's sit back and put our feet up. Come on, guys, we're going to do a soccer game. And he'd manage the whole thing. And he just loved to play. And uh, you can see that. He's like a twinkle in his eye and anything I've seen of him. So you mentioned earlier that you're preparing for his memorial and figuring out what you're going to say. And it's a hard thing to do. But... um what do you think you're going to say? Do you have some ideas? Well, I wrote I wrote the rough draft yesterday. First of all, planning a virtual memorial is a very bizarre thing. In May, when he died, I thought, well, surely late fall we'll be able to gather. And Ryan and I had talked about his memorial several times, and he had wanted he had wanted it to be a celebration of life. He had wanted it to be have live music and anybody who wants to come can come. It'll just be really, you know, 
a community gathering. So that that's not an option. And then I'm also feeling like it's also not right to not do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so here we are. We did, the kids and I spread his ashes in the summer. That was another request he had had, a specific request of where and how it was done. So, so I have a lot of people who are very close to me who know a lot about putting virtual stuff together and they're helping me. And I've asked several of his friends to talk and family members. Anyway, what I'm going to say is I want to, I want to balance because I have a feeling friends are going to talk about all the funny, just nonsense that's gone on through the years. (laughs) So I want to balance that with some of my shared observation or shared experiences and observations about Ryan's deeper side and what mattered to him. And it would be his kids. It would be some of the other things I shared with you just about humanity as being, you know, he, he could talk to the queen of England and then he could turn around and talk to just some average person on the street. He didn't feel intimidated by people but he also felt no like it's like okay so you're fancy and you're not and I'm not fancy and he just had this equalizer perspective you know I don't want to talk too much about the cancer because it has been so powerfully overwhelming in our lives these last few years however that depth through the cancer was a profound thing to witness and um he just, he died with so much dignity and it was because that that's, that's at his core. Um, he was so sweet to all these people who are taking care of him, <laughs> even as they were hurting him, you know, like cause, you know, just the procedures are painful and invasive and the medicines have caused so many for the last th- two to three months of his life. It was really hard to know if the therapy was causing more harm than good. And through all of that, he was sweet. I mean, I would hear him on the phone talking about his hematocrit went to seven before they gave him a blood transfusion because of COVID. And he couldn't walk across the room without having to stop because he was too hard to breathe. And he would get on the phone be so sweet to these people and I was in the background just so upset and furious I was like what are we doing here you know but he would just he had a strength that I didn't I don't have and I hope that I can carry that on for my family and that's just a little example of what he endured and to do it with a smile I mean I, I actually called his oncologist about a month before he died because I was so worried about him. And she said, well, every time I talk to him, he sounds so great. And I was like, well, it's not. It's not great. He's very, very ill. And I'm going to tell you what I'm seeing. And I think actually it could have maybe hindered some perspective in a way because he was so positive but that's how he wanted to manage it and I wasn't that's what he that was the autonomy that he had and I wasn't going to I didn't fight him on it I just witnessed it from afar and when I did call the oncologist it was more of a please 
if you see things, you need to say something. I love how you point to his dignity and his positivity. And um, for caregivers, sometimes that's hard. It's hard to witness that because you just want to protect. Right. You have a perspective too. I think it's, you know, I could say, well, in the last 24 hours, I'm seeing the change or in the last week, right? You've hardly eaten it, right? It's a beautiful thing what the mind does when you're transitioning because it's actually, it's very spiritual and powerful and sacred, but he was, he was taking a journey that I wasn't on and I was solidly stuck in the reality watching that journey take place. And what I, once I realized really what was happening, I just wanted him to be able to do it to the fullest, most pain-free extent that he could. What would be your final thing that you would like to, for everyone to know about Ryan? That Ryan was deeply, deeply loved by a lot of people. And that Ryan deeply loved a lot of people. And I can say for myself and my kids and his family and my family and our our friends, and I'm sure other people that I don't know about, that he is a solid inspiration for life. We remember Lawrence Mickick, Dee Dee Miller, Kelly Preston, and Heidi Rankin. We remember Aaron Remy, Laura Reha, Lindsay Ruland, Carol Smith, and Colleen Steadley. My name is Corky Corley. I have just started my fifth year with metastatic breast cancer. And I have been a part of a support group in a local wellness house for about three and a half years. During that time, I have lost five metastatic breast cancer sisters. And the most current is Shami. Shami was a bright star in the middle of the day. She could never get to group on time, but she always came in with the biggest smile and the most positive attitude. When she said she was moving out of her condo and in with her daughter, it didn't make sense since she just bought the condo a year ago. But she was hiding from us how ill she was. Her daughter said she died in peace with a smile on her face. I will always remember her as a part of my life. And I will never regret knowing her, even though that means the pain of losing her. I will never regret knowing any of the women in my support group I have lost, because they've blessed my life and my journey in ways I could have never imagined. We remember Brenda, Leah, Liz, Eliza, Katie, Kate, Lauren, Hannah, Sherry, Emily, Jasmine, Tatiana, Rebecca, always remembered. Pauline Cow had the most generous spirit, had open arms and was willing to let you in. She was always there for me as a friend, and I miss her. We remember Kiata, Hanifa, Monica, 
Jacqueline, Elaine, Kathy, and Anya. We remember Bielka Holness, Zena Peterson, Nina Frankel, Sharonda Hopkins, Lauren Finster, Brenda Butner, Eliza Adams, Biko Hamalik Gans, Renee Feuerbach, Leah Kinkin, Katie Sanders, Elizabeth Oman, Laura Denono, Sandra Shee, Hannah Thompson, Cherie Jack, Rebecca Timlin Scalera, Renee Seaman, Katie Tharp, Emily Garnett, Jasmine Charles, Tatiana Raish. We remember Samantha Crago, Elaine Davis, Nadia Dorincut, April Doyle, and Yvonne Edwards. Kiara, bright light, words that defined your name, and you embraced them with a fierceness of a fire blazing sky entangled with fear and anger. You stood your ground at times alone, or so you thought. No stranger to tragedy, you fought foes hidden in shadows that few see. I saw you, your childlike curiosity mixed with diva chasing dreams and fighting demons, chasing life with no apology. Your voice was loud. Kiara, you would not go gentle into that good night, for you, my friend, fought a fight filled with life and fear that only drove you further to speak your voice and share your truth. A flame burning in darkened halls, casting lights at those of us who felt lost when we heard the words you knew so well. Sleepless nights that carried you, haunted by demons so few know. I saw you, the you that so few see, and even in the tragedy, you stood your ground and fought bravely, beautifully and boldly till the very end. Carried out on hurricane winds, the skies cried and brought you home, and here we remember you. Bright light, guiding light, shining in a loud, fierce storm that carries your spirit with the fierceness in which you fought for your life. So rest now, my friend, and know that in the end, your fears did not win. You left this world surrounded by love. Darkened clouds passed to a bright, clear sky as your spirit soared into the heavens, and we are left here to carry on the fight in your name and in the names of those who fought and fight with you. We love you. We remember Jennifer Hendricks, Bob Holden, Darlene LaCour, and Karen Markle. We remember Lizette Battle, Michelle Grimes, Aaron Leland, Christina Enriquez, and Koki Roberts. 2020 has been a really difficult year for the metastatic community. Uh, the person that I miss the most is Emily Garnett. We had met finally in person in October of 2019 in Washington, D.C. for the Metaviver Stampede and the reading of the play for our lives. But prior to that, we had corresponded virtually for um, probably a little over a year and became very close very fast. We had a lot in common and uh, that really helped us get close. Uh, plus, I think we just are similar in, in a lot of ways. And so when she died, 
uh, in March of this year, it was really difficult and has been uh, really difficult in the grief that I feel on a regular basis. Uh, the fact that there isn't another person like her. And so there's a big hole in my life, a big hole in my heart that uh, only she could fill. And the world is so much poorer for her not being in it. I see things regularly that she would love or she would hate, and it reminds me of her in a variety of ways. And so I've had to be kind to myself and, and understand that this grief thing comes in waves and that um, it's not going to be over at any point uh, because as much as I loved and uh, enjoyed her in my life, uh, that translates into the depth of grief that I have that she's no longer in my life and I will always miss her. My friend Rebecca Timlin Scalera died from metastatic breast cancer in December of 2019. Here's her sister, Vivian Champy, reflecting on her legacy. You know, a story about my sister. My sister, as you know, lost her battle to metastatic breast cancer in December. And um, I've been struggling thinking about what I would say to you because it's really hard to pick one story that we've had over the past 47 years. Uh, we just had so many good times, so many laughs, so many just great memories. She was my best friend and confidant. But as I really reflect on her life, I am the most struck by the work she did in the past four years and the selfless work she did. She was so incredibly smart. And as we look to continue her mission, trying to make metastatic breast cancer, a manageable disease. I'm just so in awe of what she found, how she worked so hard to change the narrative, how she found these incredible researchers and how she really dedicated the end of her life to really making a difference. And while I have so many incredibly fond, funny memories of my sister, I will always just be in awe of the work she did, the selfless work she did and her legacy will truly live on in so many people. So um, that's what I want to leave you with. And um, just love Reb and fighting for everyone fighting this disease or who has lost their battle. We won't stop until we make this a manageable disease. Thank you. My friend Renee Seaman lived her life with purpose. She was small, but really mighty. As an attorney at Brooklyn Defender Services, she fought for justice with commitment and passion for those who needed it most. She and her husband, David, met in law school, and together they built a loving life that centered around their young daughter, Diane. Renee was diagnosed with MBC while Diane was barely a toddler, and her determination to live life to the fullest kicked in even more, despite whatever treatments, challenges, and disappointments she faced. Renee learned to rock climb, pushed herself, and faced her fears. She actually never even ran a full marathon until being diagnosed with stage four breast cancer, and that's how we actually met, training together to run the New York City Marathon and raising money for research. But Renee kept going. She found out about the Abbott World Marathon majors, and finishing them all became her goal. One by one, Chicago, Boston, Berlin, Renee finished them all, always with David and Diane cheering her on. 
Incredibly and in spite of cancer progression, Renee found the strength and determination to finish the Tokyo and London marathons with her huge smile and spirit intact. It was so important for Renee to spend her time showing Diane what she was capable of and to not put limits on herself and to really live by example. As her friend, this was both heartbreaking and inspiring beyond words. And now every time I'm out running, I celebrate Renee. This was emailed by our Canadian friend, Jean. She says, I'm emailing the two names of friends who have died from NBC for this podcast. Darlene Lacour from Calendar, Ontario, age 62. Lori Anderson from Guelph, Ontario, age 38. We at RNBC Life get the chance to speak with and learn from inspiring leaders in our community. We talk about their initiatives, their research, their advocacy, and we also talk about loss and grief and how hard it can be living with NBC and having our dear friends die from cancer. Recently, I had the privilege of speaking with Mae McCarmo the day after she held a memorial for her dear friend and soulmate, Kat. Kat inspired Mema to do the Cat Initiative through the Tiger Lily Foundation all throughout these long months of this pandemic. We were joined also by Julia Mauis and Christine Hodgson. Christine speaks first. And it's just no matter what we do to honor them, it's never enough. Like it still doesn't fill that void. So it's Just, okay. It's okay to cry today. It's okay to feel crappy today. It's okay not to do this call today. It's a very, this is such a devastating disease. Like, Just I mean, like to be honest, we should show this though. We should be recording this and we should show people that just because we have a smile on our face and, you know, we, we sound upbeat. Like this is the reality is that behind the scenes, we're not okay. I mean, sometimes we are, but it's just, it's very difficult. So just take it easy, Mema. Yeah, I just think, you know, it's just, it's so painful. It's like, she's not coming back. So I had a therapy appointment. Good, good. And um, I had one yeah. this morning. Oh, good. But I just, I'm, I'm just, you know, I just, I just miss her so much. And then mm-hmm. I think, I think, you know, not being able to have the ceremony was like, in my mind, I thought I would do these things. And then at some point she would, she'd be on a, she would, you know, she'd come back from a, you know, from a retreat. She would go on these retreats and stuff. And it was like, you know, as I was like walking in there and everybody's like talking and laughing and I'm just, it was just so like, like I wasn't really there, you know? And then I got up this morning and I looked at my bedside and saw the program. And I just like, it's like, she's gone. And I know that I do want to live my life and I do want to be happy again, like really happy because I'm really not happy past six months. I'll be honest, but I move forward and I do a lot of badass shit, but I'm just living through like, get up. It's like, you know, eat, sleep, shit, repeat, whatever. I just, I'm just kind of in a fog. I'm just doing it with my heart, but I'm not physically all here. And as I'm moving forward, the distance between her and me is, you know, like that time. Like, it's not just, I know she's with me here, but that distance of like, 
me holding her hand and smelling her and like mm-hmm. cuddling with her, like that distance is like moving away. And people say, you know, I, and I know she's with me. She's pushed me through this, all her spirits, a part of what I'm doing, but you know, it's like, I just want that back and I, it's not going to come back. And, you know, I don't know how to even like articulate to somebody that doesn't understand. You don't have um, to just, just really those people. It's not, I mean, I ha- we have a rule in my family. I mean, we didn't, we don't have to follow it as much now. It's been 10 years since my dad passed, but we do not speak for the dead. So if somebody ever says to you what she wants, you don't speak for her. And, and by the way, you, it takes, it's only been six months. Like it takes years. I mean, this takes, it takes a lot. It took me a year to even feel, I mean, somewhat normal. An email remembrance from Denise, a triple negative thriver. I would like to honor Mega Gavin who passed away October 9th, 2020. She leaves behind a spouse and daughter. She was a beautiful spirit and traveled the world as a belly dancer. Her family, friends, and dance community are mourning her loss. She and I were in the same clinical trial together. She has gone way too soon. We need more for MBC. Here is a remembrance from Kate Petridis, a guest and a friend of the podcast. Tiffany Faust passed away in February 2019 at the age of 37 from NBC. Tiff was driven, super sharp and funny. There was nothing she couldn't do when she put her mind to it, especially when it came to helping others. The energy involved and reflected in her level of caring and support for others living with NBC was rare and beautiful. Chris Fierro died of NBC in October 2019 at the age of 39. She radiated a warmth and generosity of spirit that was contagious, from volunteering to public speaking to fundraising. Selfless love rooted deeply and firmly in her faith in God was Chris's approach to living. Monica Hill died of NBC in April 2019. At the age of 35, Monica was magnetic, a true force of nature, but in the softest and most compassionate of ways. She brought people together so effortlessly, you wanted to be near her, and she made everyone feel like they were special to her. She was the type of person who made you proud because she chose you as a friend. She was a fierce and beautiful light who made everything and everyone around her better. Amy Schnitzer died in December 2019 at the age of 30 of NBC. A trained opera singer, music was her abiding love. She was a watercolor artist, blogger, and tireless advocate for herself and others living with NBC. Amy Wadsworth Cousins died in October 2017 of NBC at the age of 36. She had a smile and warmth that could light up a room. Born and raised on one of Maine's coastal islands, she married her longtime lobsterman love at her favorite place on the land overlooking a sound on which their property sat. 
She loved to dance, tend her greenhouse, find heart-shaped rocks, and to shower those she held near and dear to her with love. My amazing mom, Janet Trollnick, passed away at the age of 46 on August 4th, 2011. Thank you for remembering with us. The loss we all feel can be so heavy to carry alone. By lifting up all the individuals who've died of NBC, including the thousands and thousands who've not been mentioned here today, we honor their memory and share the grief of it all together. We leave you now with the stunning voice of Aaron Wall, singing Mahler's Symphony No. 8 in E-flat major, the Symphony of a Thousand. Aaron was a world-renowned soprano who brought to life the masterpieces of Mozart, Strauss, Britton, and Mahler. She died of NBC on October 8, 2020, at the age of 44. Her voice is a gift for all of us.